he keeps it under control. He wishes for many things and knows he'll get only a few. He wishes he were taller, richer, slimmer, and had screwed many more girls before getting married. On the other hand, his wife Judith, who is five years younger, is quite lovely. He wishes, however, that she was just a little nicer to him. She knows that she's still quite lovely, for a while at least, until, as she has announced many times, she gets her mother's neck. Will it be a softly bloated horror or an udder of empty skin? He doesn't know. There's a family history of cosmetic surgery. Meanwhile, he's been faithful and a good provider and even changed a few diapers when their son was young. Steady. The same guy year in and year out. Judith, however, believes in the reinventability of all things, especially herself, and has cycled through shiatsu, aromatherapy, yoga, Lord knows what. Wanting something, something else. Seems frustrated, even by her own orgasms. Wants, wants more. More what? Don't he and Judith have quite enough? Of course not. But such desire is dangerous. Thus the constant reinvention. He doesn't understand how that can be done. You are who you are, he believes, and that's it. He'd like to reinvent his paycheck, however. He's paid a lot, but he's worth more. The old senior partners, amused and goatish, padding along the hallways, suck out more money than they bring in. Though he and Judith live in one of those apartment buildings where a silver-haired doorman greets every resident by name, he wishes that he were paid better. Eighty percent would do. For Judith wants another child soon. And kids in New York City are expensive. Totems of major money. The ability to project a couple of children through infancy, doctor's visits, babysitters, private school, music lessons, and summer camps while living in Manhattan requires a constant stream of after-tax cash. It's not just the cost of education and supervision. It's the protection, the cushioning. The city's children were traumatized enough by the World Trade Center attack. They don't need to see all the panhandlers with seeping sores, the crazies and subway shitters. You hope to keep them segregated and supervised, not loitering or dawdling or drifting because to linger along the path home is to invite bad possibility. The child snatcher, the pervert, the mob of taunting adolescents wielding box cutters. In Manhattan, all monsters are proximate, if not by geography, then by imagination and the contours of the imagination are changed by money. The units of luxury get larger, and this lawyer, this man, my own man, this hairless ape in a size 44 suit, knows it. You eat what you kill, he tells himself. Kill more, and you'll eat more. Another child means a new apartment, a bigger car, and keeping Selma, their babysitter, on for another few years. He's paying Selma $48,000 a year. When you figure in the extras and freebies and vacations, that's $100,000 pre-tax, more than he made as a first-year lawyer. How amazing he can pay this. How terrible that he must. And Judith is expecting a big, shingled summer place on Nantucket someday, just like her friends have. Fifteen rooms, tennis court, heated gunite pool, koi pond, You'll do it, I know you will, she says brightly. He nods in dull acceptance at the years of work necessary. He'll be humpbacked with fatigue. Yes, money. He needs more money. 
He's making a ton. Needs more. The law firm's compensation committee is run by a tight-fisted bean counter named Larry Kermer. Our lawyer, a sophisticated man who made the review at Yale, has enjoyed fantasies of savagely beating Kermer. These scenarios are quite pleasurable for him to indulge, and such indulgence results in his ability to appear cheerful and positive when in Kermer's company. Kermer has no idea of the imaginary wounds he's received, the eye gougings, drop kicks to the groin. But if Kermer doubled his salary, the fantasies of violence and retribution would disappear. Life would be kinda great. Now our man steps toward the apartment house, admiring the cherry trees under the windows, just past their peak, as is our man himself. Passers-by at this late hour notice nothing unusual about him. If he was once sleekly handsome, he is no longer. If he had once been a vigorous twenty-year-old, now he is paunched in the gut. A man who tosses a rubber football to his son Timothy on weekends. A man whose wife apparently does not mind that when he suggests that they have sex, he uses mock-witty metaphors involving speedboats, get up on my water skis, or professional basketball, drive the lane. Yes, apparently Judith likes his conventional masculinity. It does not cause any rearrangements of her femininity. It is part of Judith's life, her lifestyle, to be honest, which is not quite the same as a sofa or a minivan, but not utterly divisible from them either. This is the way she prefers it too, and any danger to their marriage will come not from a challenge to its conventionality, some rogue element, some dark and potent night, but from her husband's sudden inability to sustain the marriage's predictable comfort. He, for his part, doesn't yet understand such things, which is to say, he doesn't really understand his wife. He understands his law firm and his son and the sports page. He is, in fact, very similar to a sofa or a minivan. He has never lost or gained very much, just dense and unidentified stains. His griefs are thus far minor. His risks utterly safe. His passions unremarkable. His accomplishments, incremental and when measured against his enormous advantages of class and race and sex, more or less obligatory. If he has the capacity for deep astonishment or genuine brutality, it is as yet undiscovered. Am I too hard on him? Is my description cruel and dismissive? Probably. He was, after all, handsome enough, quite well thought of, dependable in word and deed, a real workhorse in the office, a heck of a guy, right as rain, a straight shooter, a good dude. His waist really wasn't one Sunday Times too thick. He was even reasonably fit. But I am allowed to distort this man to seek indications of weakness and decay because it makes his fate easier to explain, and because that man—you know this already—that man was me, Bill Wyeth. I'd been away for four days. My boy was turning eight, and he and his friends were set to go bowling. Attend a Knicks practice and eat at a midtown restaurant featuring waiters dressed like aliens. Then they'd all sleep over at our apartment that night. And as I opened the door, the signs of their wolf pack activity met me in the hall: a dozen odd sports shoes scattered over the floor, a spray of coats and hats, a pile of gift bags. Judith, I concluded, had corralled the boys into bed, then skipped cleaning up after them. A shadowed glimpse into our bedroom confirmed my guess. There Judith lay, exhausted in her sleep, 
her breasts rising and falling. I gently closed the door and peered into our son's bedroom, where all nine boys lay huddled and overlapping in their sleeping bags like puppies. I drifted into our new kitchen, which had cost almost $100,000. On the new kitchen counter lay a list, typed by my secretary of each boy's full name, their parents and or step-parents and or nannies, and the numbers of each. Here were the sons of some of the most prominent forty-ish fathers in the city, or in the case of several second marriages, fifty-ish fathers, and likely as not, their equally prominent mothers. Every day their corporations and banks appeared in the global financial press. Citibank, Pfizer, IBM. Certain boys in our son's class were favorites of his, others not. But the favorites didn't correspond perfectly with the boys in the class whose parents might be cultivated. Perhaps I had suggested a few certain other boys be invited for fairness. Perhaps? Of course I had. I called the Thai takeout place two blocks away and ordered up a hot, greasy mess that came in 15 minutes. And then Bill Wyeth spent the last minutes of his former life eating dinner, watching the sports scores, opening bills, and checking his email. Bill Wyeth has one other need, so he steals into the bedroom just to check again. But Judith is miles under. So he returns to his den and flicks through the cable channels, hoping for some TNA. He flicks through two dozen channels identifying each show's whack-off potential in perhaps a second before moving on, and yes, here's some kind of spring break concert. Girls in bikinis, dancing around, tits jiggling. Fine, this is sufficient. Not porn exactly, but sufficient. And he unbuckles his belt, and then he hears footsteps in the hall. Yeah, he calls anxiously, pulling out his shirt to cover his groin. I'm thirsty. Okay, he calls heartily, filled with relief he hasn't been seen. It's one of the boys. Which one, he doesn't know, standing in the doorway, blinking sleepily. The old Bill Wyeth now jumps up and hurries to the kitchen to pour the boy some milk. The boy is so sleep-slumpy that Bill has to help him hold the glass, greasy from Bill's hands. He swallows the last of the milk. Thanks, he says, drifting toward the bedroom. In the morning, the boys rushed one by one into the dining room. Judith had arranged perhaps ten different brands of cereal in the middle of the table. Did Wilson get up, she said after a few minutes. He was asleep, answered our son. Judith walked out of the kitchen. Bill, came her voice from the hall. Come here. I didn't worry until I saw Judith kneeling next to the boy to whom I'd given the milk. She gently rubbed his back, trying to wake him. Wilson, she said. Wilson, sweetie? She stopped rubbing his back and waited for him to stir. But nothing happened. I don't like the way he's just lying there, I said. I thought the boy's face looked oddly puffy, his fingers pale. I knelt down and shook him. He was cold, his head too floppy. We need an ambulance. As Judith raced to the phone, I rolled Wilson to his side, releasing pizza-lumpy vomit from his mouth. The boy looked dead. But he couldn't be. My wife returned, closing the door behind her, phone to her ear. We have a problem, she announced, trying to stay calm. We have an eight-year-old boy who isn't breathing. He was fine last night. Now Judith knelt next to Wilson. You checked on all the boys? Wilson woke up. What did you do? Something twisted in Judith's voice. I gave him a glass of milk and put him back to bed. She seemed to be searching around him, lifting up the other boys' sleeping bags and pillows. Not peanut butter. 
I gave him milk, I repeated. Judith shook her head violently in anger or frustration. He has a severe peanut allergy. She grabbed Wilson's backpack and frantically pulled out underwear, a fresh shirt, and socks. His mother made me swear not to give him anything with peanuts in it. It sets off a chain reaction in his immune system. She had to call the restaurant ahead of time to explain, and he carries a shot just in case. I threw away all the peanut butter in the house. I threw away the eggs and the cashews. I looked at all the candy. Judith, I gave him milk. She unzipped the boy's sleeping bag and pulled it back, finding a plastic case marked epinephrine injection for use in anaphylactic emergency. It's empty, she cried. She pulled the sleeping bag open further. Next to the boy's limp hand lay a yellow plastic injector device with a short needle sticking out of it. There it is, she said. He was trying to... He knew! Oh, he knew! Weeping, she bent down to kiss the boy as if trying to bring him back to life. Oh, God, I promised! I promised his mother! She looked up and faced me savagely. Was anything on the glass? Like what? Like peanut butter? No, there was some grease on my fingers from dinner, maybe. What did you have for dinner? I ordered in some Thai food, sweetie. Oh, God! Judith rushed from the room in horror, and as our lives fell away minute by minute, the arriving EMTs, the police, the call to Wilson's parents, the other boys now traumatized, crying or chattering nervously, the retrieval of the murderous empty glass, the peanut oil still on its lip, still smellable as the intensified essence of peanuts, the arrival of the other parents, as all that we had known about ourselves crumbled into oblivion, I could not help but recall that drink of milk. Who would have thought that I, Bill Wyeth, dependable, tax-paying minivan man, respected partner in a top law firm, would kill an eight-year-old boy with a glass of milk? Then I recalled that Wilson was one of the boys I'd wanted invited, for his father was Wilson Doan Sr., a managing partner in one of the city's major investment banks, itself one of my firm's largest clients, a company with offices in 126 countries. His boy had choked to death on my ambition. You could see it that way. You really could. And an hour later, Wilson Doan Sr. stood before me in the hallway of New York Hospital, his only son and namesake still and forever dead. He held his hairy fists at his sides, looking at me directly, and I realized I'd shaken his hand once years ago at some function. They said you gave him a glass of milk with peanut.